Thank you, Pastor Tad. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Excited to open the scriptures with you. We'll be in Acts 25 today, so you could turn with me there. And uh, if you're new with us, we've been working our way through the book of Acts, and we are coming down towards the end now. Um, it looks like, Lord willing, we'll have four more messages after today in this important series, and then we will spend a, a Sunday morning as well as Christmas Eve considering the first coming of Jesus and then the second coming, and then we'll be looking at second and third John, so that'll take us through the rest of the year. It's where we are planning uh, to move together. I'm so thankful that you're here, and if you're watching online, thanks for taking the time to be a part of what God's doing here. Um, the scriptures we're going to look at today, this will require some work from, from all of us, so I want to encourage you to uh, really prayerfully now just quietly yourself be asking the Lord to help you as you seek to dial in and uh, hear from Him today. Um, I hope this will be an encouragement to us. It'll take some work for us to get to the point of the passage, but I hope you'll do that work with me. We'll be looking in Acts 25. Uh, last Sunday, we left Paul in Roman custody in the city of Caesarea. The apostle had been waiting over two years to get a verdict on the charges against him. Governor Felix had refused, though, to adjudicate the case. And now, as we come to Acts 25, he's gone. A new governor has been put in place. And so the questions that we ought to be asking at this point are, will Governor Festus, the new guy in charge, will he handle Paul's situation the same way? Will he do what Felix has done and just sort of delay and kick the can down the road, if you will? Or will Paul get the justice he's due and be set free? After all, he'd done nothing wrong. Which direction will this go? And uh, it is to that question that we turn in uh, Acts chapter 25. Um, so we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, saying, asking uh, as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about that man, let them bring charges against him. Now, in many ways, this is thus far uh, a remarkably similar passage to the one we spent time on together uh, last week. Paul is... Uh, wrongly imprisoned on false charges. The Jewish leaders from Jerusalem have a religious reason to want Paul dead, but they're not allowed to execute him. And so they've created these trumped-up political charges in order to try to get Rome to execute him. Now, oddly enough, the, the Roman occupation of Israel was used by God to provide a measure of protection for Paul against the religious 
and riotous attacks of the Jews. But the Romans were in no hurry to actually deal with the case. They had delayed this again and again and again and again. But now there's a new governor in charge. And it seems like, at least in this first paragraph, that he's not going to handle things the same way. He seems to be a, a, a principled administrator, ready to get his province in order and put things right and deal with them in the way that would settle cases. Verse 3 makes something uh, rather sad very clear. The, the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem tried to use this, this transfer of power from one governor to another as an occasion to convince the new guy to transfer Paul back to Jerusalem. And did you notice the reason for that? It's pretty dark. These religious leaders had orchestrated a plan such that if Paul was transferred, then somewhere along that 75-mile journey, a hitman would take Paul out and murder him. These Jewish leaders in this setting serve as an example of what James Montgomery Boyce calls the corrupting effects of religion when it's not actually in contact with God. Remember who these people were. These were the, the Old Testament scholars and the principal spiritual leaders of the day. And yet here they're planning to execute a man without cause. Boyce, I think, is worth hearing a bit further on this point. You can follow along in this quote on the screens. He says, religion can be very corrupting. This is because if the life of God is not actually present in the worshiper, then his or her religion can become a mere veneer. Hypocrisy can be used as an excuse for doing what is obviously evil. History's teachings that some of the worst, history teaches that some of the worst things that have ever been done, have been done by people who claimed they were doing the will of God. That is, by religious persons. Boyce's point is that these Jewish scholars and religious leaders, of all people, should have known better. Should have never planned something like this. Should have been concerned with their own holiness and the holiness of people. But Judaism in the first century, at least among the religious elite, was largely devoid of any real biblical spirituality. This whole body of leaders had become corrupt. They displayed outward signs of morality and piety, but inside, Jesus himself had told them they were full of dead men's bones. Because they weren't walking with God, then their faith was actually weaponized. It became a tool that was used to advance their own ends rather than helping people and standing for God. These leaders knew their commandments well. They knew that God said, you shall not kill. And yet here they're actively trying to convince Festus to transfer Paul so that Paul could be killed. Church, I hope that sends a little bit of a shiver down your spine. Because we must be on guard ourselves. If we lose sight of our union with Christ, if we 
slowly walk away from humility, from gentleness, from love, from the Scriptures. If we're not kind and gracious even in our sin-rebuking and truth-telling, then we could go the way of these Jewish leaders. We could end up doing things that today we can't imagine we would actually do. When in reality, if we don't cling tightly to Christ, always remembering of what, he, what He's done for us, always keeping our noses in our Bibles, that we would see Christ more and more and more clearly. If we wander from our vital connection to God, then nothing is so evil that it's beyond our capability. Religion detached from a relationship with Jesus will only lead to ruin. And that's what had happened to these men. And the same can happen to us. Now as verse 5 shows, Festus though didn't take the bait. Instead, he said to these guys, well, send a delegation of your own leadership down to Caesarea, come with me, and there we'll try Paul's case. So let's hear what happened when they got there. Look with me if you would at verse 6. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, maybe it was nine, uh, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go to me with, up to Jerusalem and there to be tried on the charges against me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give up me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. So in our first paragraph, it seemed like Festus was nothing like Felix. It seemed like he's on it and is going to take care of this case. He's still in the onboarding process, and yet Paul had been waiting two years under one administration, and now in less than two weeks, he's already before Festus. In the Roman government system of uh, adjudicating cases, the governor of a province would sit on something called a bima seat, his tribunal. And if you were on charge and accused of something, then that governor had all the authority in the world. He could determine, as both judge and jury, whether you had done wrong and what should happen to you. So as Festus sat on his bima seat, he sat ready to judge Paul's case. Maybe this would be the end of wrongful imprisonment from Paul. The first paragraph would have led us to believe that. And yet, 
it didn't take long for things to unravel and to go south. The Jews again argued their fabricated charges and Paul plainly refuted them all. But Festus found himself in a real pickle. Because although he had a great authority, he could not just do whatever he wanted. And he couldn't do whatever he wanted because Paul was a Roman citizen. Now that doesn't mean much of anything to us today. But that's because perhaps we're not as familiar with the history. Because Paul was a Roman citizen, that meant that he could not be tried and convicted without real evidence. And as it turns out, there was none. Paul had done nothing wrong and no one could prove that he had. He was no threat to Rome and so he should have been released. But Festus had an Achilles heel. See, the reason he didn't just let Paul go is right in the, in the text. Like Felix before him, Festus longed for the praise of people. Did you notice that phrase that we read? It said he wished to do them a favor. A people-pleasing tendency clouded Festus's judgment. When he realized there was no clear solution, then he ended up doing the very opposite of what he had just said he wouldn't do. He offered in verse 7 to transfer Paul to Jerusalem. Talk about a flip-flop. In one paragraph, he says, no, I won't do that. And in the next paragraph, that's exactly the thing he says he would be willing to do. Friends, when a leader, a leader of any kind, gives him or herself to currying the praise of people by complying with their desires, then that leader has abdicated even the possibility of objectivity and of executing justice. Ever wise, Paul understood that this is what was at stake. And so this was a perilous moment for him. This guy had lived through a lot, and yet it became clear to Paul at that moment that a transfer to Jerusalem would lead to his death. He would never make it there. And yet, staying in Caesarea wasn't safe either, because now he can see that Festus wouldn't be objective. And all of this explains why Paul made the rather shocking claim or decree or expression that he made in verses 10 and 11. Basically, he pulled the escape hatch. He, he recognized, if I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. If I stay here in Caesarea, I'm probably going to die. And so as a Roman citizen, and what of prominence in this part of the world, Paul had the right to claim to have his case taken Rome, where he would be heard by Nero himself. Maybe in Rome he'd be given a fair trial, because it's not happening anywhere else. But if not, if he wouldn't get a fair trial, at least he'd make it to Rome where he could preach the gospel. Now stop and sort through this for a minute. The guy's been held without cause, for over two years. That's a long time. And yet, apparently, nowhere in that two-year period of time 
had Paul said, I want to go to Rome. To Caesar, I appeal. It begs the question, why? Why now? Why did he decide at this point, I should go? The answer to that question, if you think nothing thus far in this sermon has had anything to do at all with you, then this part will. Friends, Christianity is a loving relationship with a living God. Christianity is not a, 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 a book, a manual, that describes every situation you will ever face and tells you, well, if you're ever in front of X person and they uh, indicate that they're going to do X thing, well, then if you just pull this lever, then everything will be fine. That's, that's not how Christianity works. No, Christianity is a, a loving living, vibrant relationship with God. And as such, so many of the decisions we have to make in everyday life don't fall in the bucket of, of commandments, right and wrong. They fall in the bucket of wisdom in which you've got to decide on the fly what to do at a particular moment in time. That's what makes books like the book of Proverbs in the Scripture so important. Because they teach us generally what would be the wise thing to do in life. But there's no way to, to list every circumstance we would ever face. No, we've got to understand that Christians must be people who are willing to change tactics. That if in one set of circumstances we understand this is the wise thing to do, then if those circumstances change, then something else is going to be the wise thing to do. That makes sense? Micah's still with me. Thank you, buddy. Yes, so uh, all of that to say, Paul understood that day before Festus. I can't go to Jerusalem and I can't just keep waiting here because I'm not going to get a fair trial here. Paul understood that although he was locked up, in God's providence, he had been given a tool. That tool was his Roman citizenship. And that citizenship both served as what we might call a shield and a, and a conduit. It, it served as a shield, if you will, in that it protected him from the attack of the Jews. He was actually safer in prison than he would have been out. And yet, it also served as a conduit in that Paul could claim his citizenship and his right to be heard in Rome and thereby through him would flow greater opportunity for the gospel. Now that brings us to the, what, it, what is the big idea or the point of this passage. And it's one that I think will strike uh, some of us as rather odd. But this seems to be what the text clearly is teaching. It's teaching that Whenever possible, Christians ought to make wise use of civil law and governmental freedoms for the advance of the gospel. In all of our talk of politics, I'm not sure we ever get to that point. Acts 25 shows, by way of example, that wherever possible, Christians ought to make wise use of civil law and governmental freedoms 
for the furtherance of the gospel. That's exactly what Paul did. You see, his goal here wasn't, well, I've got to get out of this situation because ultimately what matters to me most is that my life would continue. No, Paul's goal was deeper than that. It was far less selfish than that. His driving motivation was that the gospel would be heard. He wanted to demonstrate through his trials that Christianity was not a threat to Roman rule. And he wanted the gospel to be heard and churches to be planted. If his rights as a Roman citizen could advance those causes, he'd happily embrace that opportunity. Christian, the application for us here in terms of a broad principle is that we should use any and every godly means available to us for the benefit of the spread of the gospel. Nothing is more important than that. Whatever our circumstances bring, whatever trials, opportunities, strengths, weaknesses, threats, joys come, we ought to use all of them for the furtherance of the gospel. Whatever laws, privileges, freedoms, and opportunities seem to be provided by God are there to serve as a shield and as a conduit to advance the gospel. Now, obviously, you're not going to get in a situation in which you will say, well, I appeal to Caesar. I mean, that's not going to do any good. Caesar's long gone. But what resources, what laws, what freedoms, what opportunities has God given you that you haven't been using? What protections are around you that you can lean on in order to make the gospel known and heard? Now this passage and its applicability to our own day may raise some questions in your mind about a, a topic that undergirds what happens in this text. And that's, what is the relationship between Christians and civil laws. Because the civil laws are what Paul was using in this text. Seeing Paul's claim that he could appeal to Caesar raises some rather interesting questions. Let me give you just two of them. How should Christians relate to secular authorities? And what is a civil government even for? Now, here's the deal. I, risk, I, I realize the, these are choppy waters I'm about to wade into. Okay? Uh, this series was planned well over a year ago. The texts were broken out. They were assigned to dates uh, in the fall of 2019. That seems like a decade ago. So I had no idea we would be in a pandemic. We'd be in masks there would have been an incredibly contentious, hostile election season, and we'd end up in the public situation that we're now in. So, my intention in speaking to these matters doesn't have anything to do with who has won and who's claiming he didn't win. So, if you hear what I say from this point forward, as... Uh, arguing for or against a particular candidate or a political party. That's on you because that's not what I'm saying. But I do want to ask you to consider these questions 
not through partisan lens, but through Christian lens. How should Christians relate to secular authorities? And what is a civil government for? If we can't answer those questions, Acts 25 doesn't make any sense. And if we can't answer those questions, we will have a hard time navigating the particular circumstances that we find ourselves in today. Romans 13 provides probably the clearest set of answers to these questions of any one single passage in the entire Bible. And, interestingly, it was written by the same guy that we're studying in Acts 25, and it almost certainly was written before the events of Acts 25. And I think for those reasons, this passage does a really great job of showing the relationship between Christians, civil law, and I use that phrase to say, not what the Bible commands. Did you see that? Like two of you did. Um, the, what's the relationship between Christians, civil law, meaning not biblical law, but governmental, secular law, and the governing authorities? How do these things work together? And what is the government for? Well, Romans 13 tells us in only seven verses. It says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. This is one of the very few times in the Bible we are told to be afraid. Be afraid. For he who does not bear the sword, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, everyone must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is is owed. And we take a big gulp together. Friends, governing authorities, Paul wrote, under the inspiration of the Spirit, governing authorities are instituted by God. Notice that verse 6 even calls secular leaders ministers of God. In a fallen world, friends, people are not naturally for each other. Sinners are bent inward, consumed with self, and therefore, inevitably, broken people end up causing more breaking among other people. And God has instituted the civil government to limit the effects of that sin in terms of its publicity, and its effects. The role of government, according to Romans 13, is twofold. 
Number one, the government exists to punish those who break the civil law. And number two, to reward those who keep it. That's not a very long list. Punish, reward. What is the government for? That's it. Whether you're from China or the United States, whether you're from Peru or Nigeria, Canada or Saudi Arabia, governments exist to promote a civil, peaceful society through punishing wrong and rewarding right. Now, I recognize that that doesn't answer every question. However, that should be enough to temper our expectations. You see, every government has problems. There's no such thing as a perfect system of civil authority. And if you think it's hard to live as a Christian in 2020 in the United States under the government that we now have, imagine being among the teeny tiny minority of Christians alive under Roman rule. This brings us to a very important point. A point it's a point that I fear is largely lost today. The government is important. But the government is not ultimate. I'm concerned that with an election cycle as rough as the one that's still wrapping up, we may be tempted to swallow whole the message that whoever sits in the Oval Office will ultimately determine the quality of our lives. And brothers and sisters, that's just not true. Why do we think that and feel it so deeply when it's never true? I mean, we do this every four years. And you may be elated or disappointed, but life goes on. Friend, if you think, if you find yourself thinking of every election cycle in apocalyptic terms, then you have given the government an authority in your own mind and heart that God has not given it and that it doesn't actually have. It matters. It does change our lives in some ways. But the government is far, far, far less important than our social media posts would say or our conversations would sometimes tempt us to think. Every government ever in existence exists to punish wrong and reward right. That's it. But regardless of whether they do that correctly or not, Christian, the Lord Jesus Christ has you. He is your El Presidente. He will take care of you. He will hold you fast. And Christ will build his church. So, how do we relate to civil government? Well, this passage tells us. Unless obeying a civil law would require us to disobey God. That's the caveat. Unless obeying a civil law would require us to disobey God, God commands us to obey. I mean, look at the list in Romans 13. We submit, 
We pay taxes, we respect, we honor. Friend, for like 99.9% of the people in the room right now, I have, I have no idea who you voted for. I do know that for every Christian, regardless of who you voted for, the will of God is that you would respect and honor whoever holds civic office. A failure to do so not only harms your witness, it gives life to something within you that will spread like gangrene and really significantly hinder your own walk with Jesus. We Christians understand that we don't subscribe to the view that gives ultimate value to governing authorities. But we do see them as God's servant for our good. We shouldn't expect salvation, but we do accept their leadership. And how is it that we can do this? Well, Christian, we can submit to civil leaders we may not agree with, and we have the power to do that because ultimately Christ has freed us from our own selfishness and rescued us into a relationship with Him such that we understand Ultimately, we are submitting to God, and authority is good. Paul's actions in Acts chapter 25 serve as the perfect example of what Paul taught in Romans 13. So if you think through this chronologically, prior to being arrested, Paul had written Romans. And that same author of Romans 13, now in Acts 25, is showing us what does Romans 13 look like in flesh and blood, in a real life? Well, it looks like the fact that Paul had never disobeyed the law, and therefore he had no reason to fear. And he had done what is right. And so it was a reasonable expectation for Paul to claim his civic blessing of being able to be taken to Rome. And he should have expected that if the government does its job, they will not kill me. Festus was uh, happy to say yes to Paul's plea. He was happy because that got the issue off of his chest and sent him ultimately to Rome. But, does God giving a certain responsibility to the civic authorities mean they will use it rightly? Of course not. Just like you and I can be given a privilege and responsibility from God and we can choose not to exercise it rightly, that operates on a, on a civil level too. A government can abdicate its role. Church history tells us that when Paul got to Rome he spent another two years in prison. That's four years waiting for an answer to something he didn't do. And if the historical record outside the Bible is correct, eventually Paul was executed. What that means is the Roman government failed 
on its two principal duties. They did not punish evil. Rather, they punished someone who had not done evil. And they didn't reward good. There's no guarantee that if you or I submit ourselves to the government, the government will do what is just. But that doesn't change our responsibility. God's command is that we submit. Now, in the final analysis, as we wrap this up, I think all of this must be placed in its larger context. If we would appropriate these truths and rightly relate to the government authority that God has given us today. Honestly, I think the, the struggle that many of us have to not become incredibly hostile when topics of politics arise is because ultimately we've ascribed to the government a value and an importance it simply does not have. And in so doing, we have come to misunderstand God himself. And so you've been patient with me, and I recognize some of this um, feels like a Brillo pad on your back. But, but let me give you a few more brushes. Okay? The Bible's clear. God is sovereign over all things. There, there is no little tiny nook and cranny of your life in which God has said, I won't touch that one. No, God's in control of everything. We just saw that in Romans 13 related to the civil authorities. But that's just one of many, 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 many examples in the Bible. God rules. God reigns. God is supreme. Nothing is outside his purview. Nothing has ever caught God by surprise. He's never said, I didn't see that one coming. And not only that, he is the active agent. He providentially governs everything. God was sovereign even over Paul's imprisonment. And God is sovereign over every hard thing and every easy thing in your own life. So if we apply these truths to our recent election, because our trust is ultimately in God, we don't allow the meaning of our lives or our confidence about the future or our emotional demeanor or our sense of what matters most to be bound up in Washington, D.C., to do so is idolatry. Our hope is ultimately in God. And if we sit down in the providence that He provides, then even if the government becomes increasingly unjust, we will not crumble. We will not cower. We will not fear. If our own convictions as believers become less and less and less represented in the halls of the governmental power, we won't be shaken. Because Jesus reigns. Jesus is in charge. Not Trump, 
not Biden, not the Senate, not the House. Jesus rules. And because Jesus rules, then we will submit ourselves to proximate authorities. And we can do so with great confidence that God will take care of us. God taking care of us does not mean that our lives will be easy. They weren't, his, Paul's life was not easy. Our goal as Christians is not to live pain and problem-free lives. Our goal is to glorify God. Our goal is to see the gospel advance. We are people who understand that it's better to live as prisoners with Jesus than to live as free people without him. In God's strength, by relying on his spirit, may we learn to trust him in all circumstances. Ultimately, the only way to do that is to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, the greatest encouragement we could give you today is the truth that Jesus is in charge and if you will turn from a life without him and place your confidence and trust in him, then you will be given a king who is never a tyrant, who is never absent, who always does what's right. Church, the Oval Office matters, but the throne room of heaven matters far more. Whether the U.S. government rewards right and punishes wrong like they're supposed to, or whether that gets flipped on its head in such a way that the government actually punishes right and rewards wrong. Either way, individual Christians and family of God called Church on Mill, we will be fine. Do you believe that? If our goal in life is not to live as long as we possibly can with as great ease as we possibly can, then we need not live in fear and panic and in turmoil. Because God has us. Paul could navigate these circumstances not because he knew what was going to be handed to him. He didn't but because he knew ultimately the one upon whom whatever was handed to him had already passed through his hands. In God's good providence, Paul sought to exercise wisdom, to submit to the governmental authorities, to embrace every opportunity and law and freedom that was afforded to him, and to use them all to leverage gospel opportunities. Church, our confidence in God's ability to keep his promises instills in us a confidence that we don't have to be beat around by the hurricane of 2020. We can stand strong in the middle of the storm with joy, with love, with confidence, with strength, because God is good. 
I can think of no better way to end this sermon than to remind us of something else Paul wrote in Romans 8. He says this. If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who will condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed in, is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or our candidate losing or our candidate winning? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we've talked about a topic among many topics, but a topic serves as a potential flashpoint and source of contention or a great peace and ease. Lord, where we have exalted government and given it a position in our own minds and hearts that you haven't, we confess that as idolatry. And where we have spent far more time stewing, thinking, writing, reading, arguing about who sits in the Oval Office compared to giving our attention to the one who sits on the throne room of heaven. We confess that our eyes have been averted to something that matters but is certainly not worthy of worship. Father, reorder our minds and hearts. Recalibrate our affections. Redirect our volition that we might give honor and respect and taxes and submission. But we might not give ultimate allegiance to any civil authority. And at the same time, Lord, help us to understand the, the freedoms and opportunities and gifts that you have given us and to use all of them and leverage them and harness them that what matters most might be our great passion and that is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ that people might come to know you and be delivered out of condemnation into a saving relationship with Jesus. 
where we've neglected those things. We pray today that you would begin a new process of helping us this week to notice those around us who might not know you and to see the resources and laws and freedom that you've given us as tools to harness in order to proclaim Christ. And God, we pray that you would help us to see that we are united, not by political party and not even by agreement around political philosophies, but rather by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For you have freed us, adopted us into your family, and you have placed us at the table with brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray this coming week among us who make up Church on Mill that we would continue talking this out and praying it out and visiting with each other about how we can better use the opportunities you give us. And that if we've sinned against one another and how we've spoken about the role of the government, that we would go and seek forgiveness. And that our great confidence would be not in Washington, but in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.